0: Simon, lovely to see you, and thanks for taking the time to chat today. A lot has changed over the last 18 months. One of the things that has been clear is how well technology has enabled people to continue to work, to do it safely. So a lot of good things have come out of it. We've managed to get internet delivery for food, for anybody who wants to be comfortably numb, they can get that delivered to them as well at home. I suppose one of the things that really... I'm starting to think about is whether we, as a society, are ready for the embrace of digital in quite the way that it has unfolded, and that's not just about privacy, I don't think, although that clearly is a major issue, which I'm sure we will come back and talk about. but starting to think about whether people have equal access to the internet, equal access to digital devices. And whether that's giving rise to a gap that we haven't thought about enough between the people who can and the people who, who don't.
1: I, I think what the pandemic has done is accelerated a lot of existing trends and it's laid bare some of the um, uh, you know, some of the realities that were already there. Uh, I saw a lot of this at the Information Commission's office because I'd been our accountable executive for all of our COVID response work. And in the very early days of the pandemic, the listeners will recall, there was a, a lot of focus on, on actually how we just got basic foodstuffs and the like to vulnerable people. And then later on, there's we've had various attempts to deliver services through apps, you know, in particular, say, around contact tracing, how that works. And as we've hit those points, it's every time it comes up with the same, you know, there, there's, there's something that works for now a majority of the population. And, and then somebody puts their hand up and says, well, hang on, uh, how is that going to work for people who uh, don't have smartphones, don't have mobile phones, don't have Internet? Um, you know, they're, they're unbanked and can't use contactless payments. So there's, there's a whole range of, of, of challenges that have, have come up. Those challenges have always been there, but it's only when we've been saying, "Okay, we've actually got to get very basic services to people in a a crisis so that they've really crystallized. I I can't say that we have risen to the challenge yet in any kind of satisfying digital way. Uh, There's been different uh, attempts around the world to address issues around contact tracing for people who don't have phones, including I think in some countries in Southeast Asia, and I, I'm, I'm thinking of different schemes, I would hesitate to name which one's which, uh, they were giving away different devices saying, OK, well, you know, if you want to be part of the contact tracing system, you can have this widget and then you'll be part of it. But we haven't really nailed that down. And we do need to, think to get to a stage of saying, uh, OK, uh, are we going to carry on for the next 10 years accommodating non-digital people? Or are we going to, in some way, try and encourage all those folk to, to get on board? The problem is, obviously, is that some of those folk haven't been able to get on board because they don't have the skills or the money, which are addressable problems. But other people just don't want to go and play with the technology because, you know, that, that, that's not something that interests them. Maybe it's not something they want to pick up at the, the particular stage of life they're in. And I, I don't see how we can have a easy democratic fix, which involves forcing people to use technology they don't want to.
0: It, it's difficult to to, to to come up with a structure that means that you can impose it. The shortage of skills or the shortage of money. Is it your sense that, that the government are thinking about ways of providing a bit of training to the older population? Say, if it's an older population, thing, it may not be, it's not as simple as that. These things never are. But some sort of adult education program to allow people to learn. How to use it and, and to learn how to protect themselves their information and their assets
1: so with digital literacy my personal take is actually that that, that responsibility is is too widely spread across government and regulators and we at the ICO have some responsibilities for it the, the, the bulk between the regulators for that responsibility probably falls on ofcom they have a media literacy obligation which is more direct and explicit than others but pretty much every major regulator has some responsibility to inform people and citizens of the UK about something to do with digital, and it's it's very piecemeal. And I don't think anybody really feels that the experience of the the end user is satisfactory. They don't. They're not getting clear messages. Not getting. They're getting too many messages, if anything. Uh, and and obviously the scope for misinformation and disinformation in this area is is so large that very often a, a well-meaning education program from a regulator is still lacing its boots as the misinformation has already run around the world. It's, 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 that, that's a challenge. So I do think there's a lot more we could do, which has really come from, I think, uh, uh, you know central government driving uh, some coordination here to pull together all those strands into something a bit more, more dynamic. But there is the other point I wanted to make, which is that... I don't think it's only about just telling people how this technology works or indeed then giving them the, the technologies. It's not a matter of whether they can afford it. But what we've seen again and again is different groups don't necessarily trust either the technologies or the organizations behind those technologies. So it's not about just telling them, here's how you install this app, here's how you press these buttons, and then away you go. Especially if you are from a group which has had previous bad experiences of imbalances of power, or misuse of technology, or, or or different interactions with authority in some way, you we've seen it again and again. Those those people, those those groups, will quite rightly be be mistrustful of the organisations that are, are are pushing new solutions. And if you, we want to have take up from the the whole span of the UK. We we can't just say it's a matter of just explaining to people how it works and then it'll be okay. There'll be people who will be, you know, who need who need to really we need to win hearts and minds through being transparent and accountable in in what the the upside of these benefits are and, and why the organizations that are going to collect the data are are trustworthy.
0: That sounds like getting cooperation across those avenues of regulation and government. Requires an overarching sense of what we're trying to achieve, which seems like it is not necessarily crystallized as yet. Is that fair? Do you think?
1: I think it is fair, and and what we've seen again and again in different uh, initiatives, especially big government initiatives over many many years, is issues around scope creep. So if I if I hark back in the UK to the uh id card scheme from when did that run from from the mid 2000s you know through to 2010 11 or some such at various times the government was saying well we're going to have an id card scheme because it's going to help with access to benefits it's going to re- reduce illegal immigration it's going to provide efficiencies for digital identification etc cetera, etc cetera. and different people it, it was a, it was a christmas tree upon which people hung many baubles Until from the public's point of view, they didn't really know why it was, you know, what the scheme was about uh, and what the benefits were uh, and why the benefits outweighed the risks. Uh, And in the end, you know, both public and political trust was lost and and the scheme was thrown in the bin. And I think we have that risk uh, again and again, whereby as soon as you have an initiative which is looking to use information about people, other bits of government in its widest sense so not just central government but just just various well-meaning initiatives go Oh, that's great well we could use that as well and and sometimes that's with the best intentions and sometimes it's folk over at other government departments that might want to use it to prevent crime or reduce benefit fraud or immigration and then there's also you know you know it's it's kind of it causes mistrust in whether any information put into that will, will result in risk to you as an individual because it might be used against you.
0: You can sort of see different aspects of that debate manifesting itself around vaccinations and proof of having had a double vaccination, which I think the government assume most people want to be able to travel. So therefore, to get them to sign up to the NHS app or something that proves that they have been vaccinated gets them a long way down a road that they wanted to go down anyway. Because the public can see the immediate benefit of it. Whether that's going to be information that is well protected is open to question.
1: Yeah, I I agree, but I think there's I think that question around vaccine passports is actually a useful illustration of this point. That there's very little pushback from anybody around vaccine passports for international travel. Because that's a, a limited use. There's precedent. People have already in the past had to have other Uh, evidence of vaccinations travel certain countries and people can see clearly this horrible disease leaping from place to place Mm. if you compare that to domestic vaccine passports then it it, it gets harder travel is 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 an exciting but is often a a luxury item and it's a nice to have rather than a must have and many of us are desperate to, to travel to nice places again but we wouldn't Prioritise that above, you know, other domestic things. When we've all, I think, uh, over the last year, really began to appreciate some of the the everyday pleasures in life, and often there is going to the pub with your friends and and kind of just being able to 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 move from place to place and see who you want to see. That's a more fundamental thing. I, I don't think many people in the UK necessarily said this so explicitly, but I think we've all began to really engage with a debate that wasn't there before about the balances between different rights and freedoms we see it's like the ICO because uh, it, privacy is, is a fundamental right but it's not an absolute right and, and one thing we balanced a lot during the pandemic is societal bids and harms versus individual rights and and uh, and uh, harms there are balancing tests along all this way. When you have something, you know, a, a pandemic, you have a virus which thrives on 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 you know people being close to one another, and we've all made sacrifices along the way, and we've we've realised through practical application, of everyday lives, how these various rights balance off against each other, and we've all said, okay, we're going to restrict our freedom of movement because it's better for society overall that we do that. So I I think we're emerging from the pandemic with a a more nuanced practical understanding about how we actually balance out all these individual rights. It's going to be a really interesting debate over the next few years to see whether the the public debate moves on because we've had to apply some of these concepts in practice.
0: Have people just made the trade-off that technology has helped them through and therefore, again, balance of risk and reward, they're prepared to take the risk?
1: Yeah, I haven't seen, you know, 90 degree changes in, in public sentiment around, around privacy. There's, there's, there's still the same concerns that have been there for for a while. And if anything, they've manifested themselves slightly more sharply during the pandemic. There's been an ongoing recognition that sharing health data in the right way is is useful in these areas. And, you know, whether it's for research purposes or direct care purposes with a, a reluctance to, to just, you know, open up the floodgates and, and, and forget about any of the rules and controls in place. The contact tracing app, we were always very much in favour of, of a, the solution we ended up having, which is a decentralised approach where there is no central government database for contact tracing. The government went down a, a different route at first and, and then changed tack and, and went down the route that was being built with some help from Apple and Google. And overall, we were more comfortable with, with that latter approach than the first approach. What we found in terms of the discussions we're having with stakeholders during that time was that wasn't just a kind of a technical privacy concern. That was actually an issue which was affecting people's willingness to actually use the apps, especially again, among communities that were had reason to be less confident in authority in general. One area I do think has become much sharper in the last year is the interaction between privacy and competition and how large technology firms have so much power and influence in our lives because during the pandemic we've all realized quite how reliant we are uh, on big tech firms for our friendship networks for the food we're getting delivered for all the good, all the goods we're getting delivered uh, you know for the way we're talking to one another even today again that was already a dynamic in play but if you whipped away a Google or an Amazon or a Facebook, if you closed down the country overnight during the middle of the pandemic, then it would have placed enormous strain on the country and there'd have been resilience issues with that country. So I, th- I think we've learned through the pandemic that uh, these technology organizations have enormous power um, and, and obviously enormous benefit to our lives as well, to be clear, but, uh, but enormous power in our everyday lives. And, and that perhaps wasn't quite as apparent 18 months ago.
0: How do you restore a balance of power? Because the regulator is obviously important to that debate. It's difficult for individuals in and of themselves to band together collectively. So it then falls to the government and or regulator to do that. And whatever about the regulators, we can have hopes that the regulators are sufficiently well informed, as this discussion would demonstrate that regulator is in lots of cases sufficiently well informed it's harder to be convinced that government is well informed
1: well this is a really hot topic for for governments around the world we are I think really engaged with it as a regulator and across regulators in the UK and elsewhere but I would I wouldn't paint a picture where we're you know really worried about this and, and government is is sailing on I do think it is going to be an area where there's going to be ongoing discussion and research and learning and and ultimately different rules and regulation over the next few years. And on, on one level, Ethno, you know, as a regulator, we've setting new policy and new legislation is a, is for government. And we have to understand, uh, engage with, promote, guide, inform, and ultimately enforce whatever regime is put in place by government. So there, there's a, a dynamic there. But I I, I do think that there is a really interesting debate unfolding about when is this challenge best addressed through giving individuals rights and educating individuals about those rights, which has to be part of the picture, Uh, and when is it more about either, A, imposing accountability on big organisations, or B, taking other measures uh, which are very much in in the, you know, the competition antitrust world around those organisations. When I started the ICO two and a half years ago, that that wasn't really a a big discussion in regulatory circles. It was it was bubbling along. It wasn't completely new, but it wasn't one of the main topics of debate. Now it's absolutely a a, a big mainstream discussion point. So I, I do think that we're going to see more in this area over the next couple of years.